Hello, dear listeners. I am pleased to announce a new memoir offering this fall that rivals the best we've had in recent years. From September 20th through October 25th, six consecutive Tuesdays, I invite you to join me and Linda Joy Myers and our guest teachers for The Courage to Write Fearlessly. We have Carmen Maria Machado, New York Times bestselling author of In the Dream House, In addition to today's guest, Michael Denzel Smith, author of Invisible Man Got the Whole World Watching, a book that was not only super interesting to read for its historical and cultural content, but also so brave in its proclamations and opinions and observations, which is part of what Michael's going to be teaching about. We also have Stephanie Fu, who was last week's guest and author of What My Bones Know, and Jonathan Kirsch, a longtime literary lawyer who helps memoirists not get into legal trouble with their books. This course is about confronting and overcoming common fears like exposure, family fallout, getting it right, or the fear of getting sued. So if you struggle with any anxieties or hypotheticals about outcomes to writing your memoir, please join us for The Antidotes, September 20th through October 25th, and register at www.magicofmemoir.com. Hello to the dogged, to the strong-willed, to the unflappable among you, or to those of you who struggle in your writing to feel or even sound that way on the page. I am Brooke Warner, and I'm here as always with my co-host, Grant Faulkner. And Grant, today we're talking about an important topic that doesn't get touched upon too much in memoir, and yet it's kind of ever-present and lingering there, and that is uh, the importance of speaking your own opinion. And so we have the perfect guest on this topic, which is uh, Michael Denzel Smith, because the man is opinionated. (laughs) And it's part of what's so wonderful about reading him. And it's curious because, of course, there's so much nonfiction in which it's fine or expected to be opinionated, self-help, social commentary, polemics. And it turns out that Michael's more recent book, Stakes is High, is a polemic style book, which is defined as a strong verbal or written attack on someone or something. But in memoir, writers can really struggle on this point of coming down too hard or too strong, uh, which is to do with fear of offending or fear of being too presumptuous, you know, as if you know what's true for everyone, uh, or the fear of alienating others. So there's just a lot of wrestling with how much to say and how far to push and how boldly to proclaim your truth uh, or the truth of your experience. Definitely good question. And just to preview a little bit about what Michael said, I think his his answer about the consequences of, of telling your truth is just so fascinating. So I encourage listeners to go all the way to the end and hear that. And it's such an interesting question that you pose because it's a question of how to design a conversation to reach people and make them pay attention and then to hopefully engage them in what will be a long and challenging conversation. And in Michael's case, I also want to just refer to his book. He says that this dangerous moment in history is not an aberration it is the course this country has always been on. And I think a lot of people didn't realize that this was the course we've always been on because maybe we weren't talking about a lot of things, you know, because there was a fear of offending or that we, we weren't talking about them at all. And um, this makes me think of some of our earlier conversations, Brooke, about how anger and writing out of anger is sometimes frowned on, you know, that anger is, you know, sometimes seen as a character flaw, even uh, when anger is a very real emotion that guides us to, to truth. And so I think stating a truth as directly and truly as possible generally leads to good things. Yeah. I mean, I think about that, you know, when I was listening to Michael talk to I was thinking about the places where I 
was most assertive in my truth in my writing. And I've done that in some essays and I did it with Write On Sisters, you know, this kind of opinionated writing that we're circling about uh, today. And I spoke in uh, Write On Sisters about things like, you know, women only circles or my thoughts about how women writers get in their own way and also about double standards in the book publishing industry. And all of those experiences were based in the personal. Uh, and of course, the consequences, you know, we're talking about consequence, uh, they felt high because you're worried about what other people are going to think, but those other people are sort of the nebulous blob of your future readers. You know, like I worried that women would take offense to the notion that women could be their own worst enemies. You know, I worried that men, you know, the very few who might read the book might think I was just some angry feminist. And I think this is the problem with coming down hard with your own opinions is that you have to risk alienating people a little bit. And I also think, you know, again, Michael's interview today is, is so great because he's really talking about it being like bigger than you, you know, if you can step out of your own way a bit and like, yes, perhaps there's fallout, perhaps there's consequences, but the stakes are high. You know, there are things that need to be said and all of us have, uh, you know, w want to give voice to the various things that we're circling and that we care about. Uh, and I also believe that if your arguments are sound and if you're level-headed in your approach, then risking sharing your opinion will always change hearts and minds. Yeah. I mean, speaking your truth is always going to offend someone, right? I mean, that's just the nature of, of going deep into a truth and voicing it. But if you don't speak it, then you're affirming the status quo, you know, and, and that's not good. So Michael's memoir, you know, it does anything but affirm the status quo. And, and it was published in 2016, just to give listeners some uh, framing for it. And the book is called Invisible Man, Got the Whole World Watching. And it's about Michael's education as a black man, uh, very high level. So he has a lot of commentary about all kinds of things, police violence, the murder of black men by police, black comedians and musicians, Barack Obama, LGBTQ plus issues in the black community. And he categorizes his book into, into things that he observes and then dissects and tries to understand. And it's a memoir, but it's also a social commentary book. Right. Yes. And I would characterize the book as a hybrid memoir uh, in that it is definitely his story. And we're talking about this book, his older book, because in the context of today's uh, topic, that book has more of what we would call memoir qualities and this idea of sort of risking yourself and your consequence. Whereas the second book, uh, Stakes is High, which is a more recent book, has been characterized as a polemic. I would agree with that. You know, and these are very different styles of writing. The memoir is about growing up black, the expectations on black men, the expectations on him in his own family, but it's also a cultural critique. And so, you know, it's just, uh, wasn't surprising to me that when he uh, gives the interview that he talks about the fact that he at first bristled at the idea that it would be a memoir, but then softened to that idea over time. And I think that's true for a lot of people who don't initially think they're writing memoirs and then they bring their own personal experience into the book. Uh, and it ends up being this question of like, right, the personal is political, <laughs> which is, you know, always the case and something that we know. Mm -hmm. And there's just a lot of relevance in both of his books. You know, both of his books answer the question of why now, which is a question the publishing industry will have for you, you know, when you decide to try to shop a book around. So uh, I, I, I love that we're, you know, kind of talking about these different ideas and memoir about uh, opinion and when to make opinions and how that is, you know, perhaps super relevant to the moment at hand. 
Yeah. So by contrast, Brooke, I'm sure you've seen books that struggle to answer that question of why now. And because they're books that take place in the past, what do memoirists who have books that are maybe not quite so pressing in their relevance do or what considerations should they have? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question because it's a thing. You know, when I worked in traditional publishing, that was much more of a pressing question than it is for me now at She Writes Press. Um, and that's because traditional publishers are driven by market considerations uh, and they need to be able to tie into trends. They're looking to meet readers in the moment or around issues that are pertinent or that are in the public consciousness. I mean, we want that at She Writes Press too, but it's not the driving force behind our acquisitions process. Uh, and you know, I'm working with a memoirist right now who's working on a book about coming out as a lesbian in the early 1980s. And part of what we've been working on together is the question of why does it matter? What about her book would be relevant to readers now? And some of the things we've been focused on are the AIDS epidemic, because big historical events that have wide ranging repercussions always make for good story. And that's why you'll never see a shortage of World War II fiction or 1960s counterculture memoirs. You know, these are just the kinds of topics that people can't get enough of. And then we work through what she would write about that would speak to the current backlash against LGBTQ rights, which would make it relevant. You know, so even though that's a story that took place in the 1980s or hers is a story, we'd be looking to make connections to things that are pertinent in the community today. And so, you know, this is why today we're talking about having opinions, you know, having opinion in your book, in your memoir is this idea that your personal experience requires you to have an opinion on the topic. You know, without that, it's kind of bland or it's like the what for question. Uh, and memoir is a claiming of truth. It's standing up for yourself in the face of those who might deny you that truth. Uh, or it's about telling a story of adversity or hardship where invariably you face naysayers or biases or oppression. And so it's simply the case that uh, one of the reasons readers are drawn to read stories true stories is because they are bearing witness and they want that. They want to see what that means and what it feels like. And so then it's incumbent upon the writer to come to that question of what they experienced with conviction. Yeah, I like your phrase that a memoir is a claiming of truth because that's the way truth operates, right? It has to be claimed and then it has to be voiced. So claiming is an energetic, almost like a physical action. Um, you bear witness, but then you do something more in the act of writing about what you've witnessed. And to go back to that quote I read from Michael's book earlier when we were talking, it's, it's only by claiming that truth that we can see the course of history that we've been on. It leads to inevitable places such as where we are now even though many thought we were headed in a different direction. And with that, I look forward to hearing more of Michael's thoughts after this short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Welcome back, everyone. We have Michael Denzel Smith on the show today, who is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Invisible Man Got the Whole World Watching and Stakes is High, winner of the 2020 Kirkus Prize for Nonfiction. He is the podcast of Open Forum on Lit Hub Radio. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Harper's, Oxford American, The Nation, and elsewhere. In 2014 and 2016, the named him one of the 100 most influential African Americans in their annual The Root 100 list. And he was also a 2017 NAACP Image Award nominee. And Michael's joining us from Brooklyn. Hello, Michael. Thank you. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. You have two books, one that came out in 2016, just after the election of Trump, and the other right at the outset of the pandemic in 2020. And so you wrote your first book, the memoir, Invisible Man Got the Whole World Watching in an Obama World, Mm -hmm. uh, and landed this super prescient book at this incredibly poignant moment. (laughs) Uh, And then the second book, Stakes is High, Kiese Lehman actually said this in a review of your work, that it predicts the American response to the pandemic and also provides a soulful, rigorous way out of the destruction. So I want to ask you about this future site you have and what is the experience like to release these books consecutively at these two pivotal moments in our recent history? Uh, Until you said that, I hadn't even really thought of it in that way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, yeah, I think it, it just is more reflective of what was I thinking about at the time? Uh, how was I experiencing the world? And Invisible Man got the whole world watching. Uh, you know, I sat down in 2010 with a mentor who was saying, this is like the very beginning of my writing career, who was telling me, you know, you are telling us what it is to be a young Black man in Obama's America. And I hadn't really conceptualized my work as such until uh, he said that. And so I I sort of set out uh, to do that with the first book to say, what are the things that are happening in the lives of young Black men that the nation sort of like latched onto? But what's that personal journey also about uh, coming into an understanding of manhood in this sort of in this very unprecedented time of the first black president and the specifics of the figure of Barack Obama? And it just so happens that I got done with it uh, as he was uh, about to leave office. And it, it's just sort of wrapped up uh, in that way. And then the election of Trump happens. And initially, and I sort of write about this in the, the, the book and the conclusion of Stakes is High, I didn't want to write that book. I thought I wanted to run away from what I knew was coming. I sat down with my editor at the end of 2016, conceptualizing the next book, writing a whole book proposal that had nothing to do with Trump that had nothing to do with the politics of the time, but it just became clear to me later after finishing that proposal that was supposed to be my escape that I needed to to wrestle with it because it was all that I could think of and it was all that a lot of us could think of. It's it's and it was uh, you know a public discourse asking how did we get here? How could this happen? And feeling very alone in a way that 
there was so much confusion around how that how we landed with Trump and and I needed to to make sense of it um I needed to make sense of for myself the confusion that I was seeing and offer some clarity and also hopefully offer a space for reflection uh for for people who had been sort of been politicized by that moment, who were showing up to protest and had never protested before, who were appalled by the fact of Donald Trump. I needed some space to to work through those things. Uh, and so it really, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear my work sort of described as like predicting or thinking through a future uh, when it's really just an an observation and a, uh, how do I want to say, it's a synthesizing of everything that I see uh, happening in the world. That word synthesizing is interesting because I was thinking that your first book is a memoir, but also a bit more than a memoir and that it has a lot of cultural commentary, politics, theory, and history. And it's really like the interdisciplinary studies version of a memoir, I think. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, did you approach the book as a memoir or what were you wanting to achieve with The Invisible Man Got the Whole World Watching? I didn't approach it as a memoir, and I think I bristled a little bit when people were uh, calling it a memoir at first. But what I came to realize and sort of accept about the way that I approach work, and what yeah, I, I teach uh, at Hunter College in the uh, MFA program for creative nonfiction, that I stress to my students is that. It's a technique. It's a device to be able to talk about oneself in the context of the world gives a reader an entry point to ground them. Right. So there are a lot of ideas that I want to be wrestling with, but to write straight theory or even to write straight cultural criticism is a way for some people to enter into those ideas. But even a feeling that I get as a reader of some of that work is that I feel like I have to have a a background in studying the the traditions that would be like more academic in, in a way or just simply like being a scholar of those traditions. And so my my approach is to say, well, what is it to personalize it, to say that like I understand the self as being created by all of these outside forces, by being influenced by all of these ideas uh, and contextualizing that for people, contextualizing the personal experience by bringing in all of this other stuff so that it fosters a greater understanding of the way we live through uh, the, the implementation of ideas. So I didn't approach it as memoir, but I knew that for me, the people that I want to talk to are people that could find that as a, a safe entry point in a way uh, to, to be able to say, I may not be able to devote my time to reading sociology and psychology and uh, philosophy or in history, but I can get a sense of that and get a sense of its impact in a way that's relatable. 
Well, many of the reviews of your work call your writing courageous, and I agree that it is, um, in the, especially in the sense that you're seemingly not afraid to say what you think about things, even when there potentially is real fallout for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you you critique America, white culture, black culture, your alma mater, actual people like Obama, uh, Kanye West, David Chappelle in the first book, and your father, which is a big one. Uh, and I know a lot of writers want to say what they think, but they're afraid of the consequences. So how do you think about consequence when you set out to write your thoughts and opinions about what you see out there in the world? Well, I, I guess the the question is about consequence, but consequence in what direction and for whom? Mm-hmm. Am I thinking about the consequences for me? And, that, and that's a valid way to approach things, right? If you are thinking about saying things that are potentially controversial or uh, that are critiques that dig a little deeper and ask a lot of people is to say that like that will upset people <laughs> and that will come back on you. My approach to it is to say that I'm not that concerned about me. Uh, what I'm concerned about or what my work is attempting to grapple with and also to transform is the world outside of me. And if the con- if one of the consequences of me writing these things is getting other people to think about them differently uh, and to to seek a change, to reach at the root with radical thought. I'm not so concerned about the, the personal fallout and the personal consequences of that. I'm, I'm asking more of myself and I'm asking more of the world. And, and I don't want it, that to sound like it's a totally selfless act it's also a you know it's also a matter of not totally feeling like i am meant for this world for long right like that that, that, that and I, I sort of wrestle with that in, in invisible man i uh, got the whole world watching is that i've never really had the sense that i'm going to be here for very long so i, be, I might as well say all of the things that i have to say now uh, before before i don't have an opportunity to uh so there's a sense of fatalism in it as well to think that like i I've got one shot every time to be able to relay a message, to open up a space for critical dialogue, but not just the dialogue itself, but the the actual change. It all feels so urgent to me. And that's the way that I approach my work. And, and so there's, there's just, you, you say courageous, and I'm appreciative that the work is received as courageous, uh, for me, I think of it as being desperate. <laughs> well, Michael, I, I now want uh, a, a long essay, maybe even a book on the subject of consequence. Um, <laughs> you opened it up in so many interesting ways um, and so many inspiring ways there. And in, Invisible Man got the whole world watching. You know, it opens and is somewhat premised on the murder of Trayvon Martin because, as you emphasize, he could have been you. And this epidemic of police violence in this country is now more broadly recognized for the social ill it has always been, you know, in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. So I couldn't help but read your memoir and think about how much has changed since 2016. 
and how much your memoir, because of its premise, contextualizes Floyd and every unjustified murder of black men before and since. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious how you see that framing of your memoir, either the same or differently due to the shift in the national consciousness. Huh. It's, it's hard to think through the idea of things changing, even though you want to recognize the ways in which they have, right? Uh, I very easily could have written Invisible Man Got the Whole World Watching in almost the same way after the killing of George Floyd as I did after the killing of Trayvon Martin because of just how much of the same... Uh, how much of the same ideology, how much of the same cultural forces remained and uh, pushed forward both of those uh, tragedies. But it's also to say that Stakes is High is a very different book from Invisible Man Got the Whole World Watching because the context did change, right? Like I was writing through the first Black presidency and then I was writing through the the backlash to that and you know our our politics did shift and not just in the form of trump but in the response to trump and people's understanding of the way that these issues played out dramatically shifted as a result of the killing of trayvon martin the result of killing of, of michael brown so forth and so on so many names to list there and I think what it what it what it was is the pushing of further radical thinking around how to solve these things, and I think that that opened up a space in myself to to say, coming back to the previous question, how desperate are we? What do we actually need to be saying? Because the idea that we continue to share our trauma around this has not moved the goalpost or, or, or has not gotten us any closer to any resolution. So the please correct me, like, uh, step in if I'm not answering the question exactly, but I think what, what my, where my thinking went is that if there are openings that present radical possibility, that is a way to get to people where they are and open up that sense of empathy and desire for uh, shifting their own consciousness. And we're in two different places between Trayvon Martin and George Floyd in that between those periods, you saw the failure of the American legal system to be able to offer redress. You saw the inability of a culture to really wrestle with itself. And then in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and in the midst of a pandemic, trying to, in sometimes just uh, very superficial ways, alter the cultural landscape so that it reflected a different set of values. My question is always what lies underneath that and what is missing from that conversation? And that's the place that I attempt to uh, 
come from for, with my work. Thanks, Michael, for that. Yeah, I think you answered the question well and, and beyond well. I mean, it's just so much to think about in terms of also where you're entering a given place when you're writing a book and what experience comes behind you, you know? So, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm feeling really honored that you'll be teaching a class in my new memoir series this fall that's called The Courage to Write Fearlessly. And you're going to be talking about and teaching about making bold assertions. You strike me as a very bold writer, perhaps that's in your nature, uh, but I don't want to be presumptuous. And so I'm curious, how did you learn to be bold? Maybe you've always been, um, you know, and you write about the stakes being high. And I guess the stakes being high also necessitates boldness. Uh, So I'm just curious if you could speak a little bit about this topic of bringing your opinions to the page. Yeah, I'm incredibly honored to to teach this class um, and for you for asking and that, uh, you know, no, I, I actually, I, I, you say that I write boldly and that, that again, that, that the idea of being courageous, of being bold, of fearlessness. And it's, it's interesting to me because I, sit in my own head, in my own body, in my own life, just afraid all the time (laughs) Um, Hmm. and feel like I've long been that, right? Like uh, if you talk to my mother, (laughs) she will tell you, she's just like, I don't know where it came from. (laughs) He was just such a quiet child and just never really spoke up about it. Like, there's no inkling that this would be the path that I was on, that I would present my ideas to the world. But I think that is also part of it for me. And I don't want to get too much into my like own psychology and turn this into a therapy session or anything, <laughs> but it is a matter of feeling for a very long time. Like I, have things to share with the world, but it seemed like nobody was interested when I was younger. It seemed like when I did want to speak up, I was told that I was wrong or I was shut down or, and the only place that I had refuge was inside of my own mind. Uh, And then I eventually found that I could write things down and, you know, in school I could get praise for the way that I wrote and someone was reading and taking my ideas seriously. Someone was desiring me to write more. Uh, every English teacher that I had through middle school and, and high school uh, sort of pushing me in that direction. And it, it was it's really a matter of where is the place that I feel like I have the freedom to do that. And then you combine that with the feeling that things are in a desperate situation that requires bold action, that requires bold thought. And how can I be a participant in that? How can I help? And, uh, you know, I, I would get questions all the time from people at, at events. They'd be like, so what can I do? What, it, what, like, I hear you about all of this stuff, but what can I actually do right now? What would you advise that I do? And I always say like, what is it that you do? I am a writer. That's what I have to offer the world. I, I don't have much else in the way of talent or, or skills. Like I, I can't go out and conceive of and build the machinery that is going to save us from climate disaster. I, I can't do that. <laughs> I, I don't have the, the know, know-how or, or anything. But 
my ask of people is to consider what is it that you do yourself? What do you bring to the world and act from there? Uh, what are the ways that you can apply the ideas and, and principles and uh, ethics and morality to the work that you do or the person that you are and the relationships that you build uh, how to how to 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 simply sit with where you are and what you have and go from there and so with my understanding of that I say how do I participate how do I do my little part uh, and it is through the written word and that's that's what I have and so you combine all of the different you know upbringing and psychological factors and the uh, you know deteriorating state of the world together and you know my my feeling is just like well I better do it now <laughs> you know in closing Michael three words that are kind of weaving through my consciousness while listening to you talk are consequence and boldness and fear. And I also know that you, you have experienced uh, some fallout along the way. And in fact, you write about that in your first book, you know, falling out with your university for writing something pretty controversial. Mm. And Brooke and I were talking earlier, you know, the way the world changes is by people stating their truth, you know, by bearing witness to the world. So we, we need that. And so I was wondering if in closing, you can, can offer some advice for our listeners about how to put that truth in the world and, and dealing with the fallout. You know, I, I think in, in dealing with the fallout is a question of building strong community, right? Um, what you're mentioning about, uh, you know, the going, being at odds with my uh, college administration, if I didn't have the newspaper staff there with me backing me up and, you know, other students believing what I was saying and willing to stand behind me, like if I felt completely isolated and alone in the pursuit of that, it would have been a much more difficult road recovering from what they did if after realizing that, like, there's a strong possibility I did not graduate uh, due to what I was willing to say uh, during that time. If I didn't have people like my mother and my aunt, you know, continuing to support me, if I didn't feel like now uh, where I am in my career, that I didn't have a strong community of friends and my partner and a community of writers that I can, can lean on, um, who are all supportive. I, I think that that's simply the key for me is, you know, knowing that whatever consequences come your way, there are people that still love, care, and support you and are willing to bear those consequences alongside you. The, the power of community just can't be understated. Hmm. Here, here, what a great place to end on. So thank you for that, Michael. And thanks for all your meaningful answers on this topic. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. Oh, thank you so much. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break.
This week's trend is about direct sales and how to think about direct sales as an author and as a buyer. And so direct sales means as a buyer that you would buy directly from the publisher or directly from the author. And for authors, it means that you're selling your book directly to your consumers, either at an in-person event or online on your own website. And so Grant, I know we both sell direct at events, but do you, uh, have you ever sold directly from your website or are you now? I have never sold from my website and I'm actually very inept, uh, in these matters. You know, when I, when I use Venmo with folks at a, at a live event, I think I end up buying my book for them. <laughs> Always a good sales strategy. Yeah. You know, I actually did, uh, sell books on my own, on my own website, Greenlight Your Book, and it lasted for just a couple of weeks. And I think I might have sold about 10 books, but then, uh, I hated going to the post office so much that I decided it was just absolutely something I could not continue to do. And I had to remove the direct sale option from my website. So it definitely wasn't for me, Grant, but lots of authors are leaning into direct sales. And so I thought we would talk a little bit about why it can be beneficial for authors. Yeah, I'm with you on that um, challenge of going to the post office. I still haven't mailed my 2021 or my 2020 Christmas cards, and I anticipate not being able to mail my 2022 cards as well. So I apologize to everybody out there. (laughs) Um, But yeah, but there are reasons why you should think about it. And here are some reasons, authors. Um, You can make more money as direct sales reduce or eliminate the royalty costs associated with retail platforms like Amazon or Apple. Authors own the purchase data of their customers, you know, which enables them to build their audience and their mailing lists more effectively. And then number three, they're an additive channel enabling authors to diversify their revenue mix and therefore, you know, you're less dependent on other channels. Right. All of those things. And more and more authors are doing direct sales, which is why it's this week's trend. You just need to know what's entailed. And some people who have the mechanisms in place or who want to put the mechanisms in place, like this is an awesome idea. Like if you happen to work in an office or even own a company that has a shipping center, or maybe you're just better suited for this kind of thing temperamentally because you don't despise the post office or you uh, are not tardy with these kinds of things as we've been complaining about ourselves, Grant. Uh, <laughs> Uh, And, you know, some authors like to sell autographed copies. And so there are lots of ways that this makes sense. Uh, But I think it's a question of time, what kind of staff or support you might have. And I think if you're a fan of an author who's doing direct sales on their site, this would indicate that the author wants that option for you. So as a buyer, if you see something like that, you know, if one of the authors that you're following has the option to buy directly, I would say do that because cutting out the middleman is a good uh, is a good choice, too. Yeah, it's definitely interesting on the level of, say, doing a Kickstarter for your book as well. And I'll just mention to listeners that you know, Brandon Sanderson was big, big in the news a while back because he made something like $30 million in a Kickstarter that featured giveaways and an upcoming book series by him. And so obviously we all can't do that. And Brandon Sanderson also has an infrastructure in place to ship all of those books. But this notion of authors taking more control of the sales channels is interesting to me, and I expect to see it evolve in interesting ways uh, in the future. On the flip side, though, one downside of selling your books is that your books um, won't count in book scan numbers, which publishers look at, at least if you sell them directly. So it's worth thinking about how direct sales, you know, just how that'll work for you. Either way, we'll continue to come directly to you each week with a wide-ranging discussion of writing and publishing, and I'd like to talk about my experiences tap dancing and clogging someday, so look forward to that. In the meantime, keep dancing your way through your story, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Right Minded. 